Welcome to The Wrap-Up, our podcast that gives you an insider's look at the top stories in Hollywood. I'm your host, Sharon Waxman, the founder and editor-in-chief of The Wrap, and welcome back to my co-host, The Wrap's assistant managing editor, Adam Chitwood. Hey, Adam. Hello, hello. We're back. Very busy week as always, especially when it comes to news stories about Disney. Yeah, we got a lot going on at that company, my goodness. But today we're excited to feature on the show an interview with the director of Elvis, Mr. Baz Luhrmann, who will discuss his new film about the king. Uh, And our own Drew Taylor will be joining us to discuss his reporting on said company, Disney, about how the Imagineers are feeling now that a move to Florida, which was quite unpopular with those guys, has been delayed. In our headlines, we're going to be talking about Abigail Disney's potential shareholder battle over CEO Bob Chapek's $32.5 million salary. We're going to talk about Paul Haggis, the director, being arrested on rape charges in Italy and Fox News settling for $15 million with a former host who raised concerns about the gender pay gap. There is a lot to unpack there. Let's get into it after some words from our sponsor. The Gilded Age, for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Drama Series. The HBO original series, The Gilded Age, is set in 1882 New York City against the backdrop of the transformative American Gilded Age, a period of immense economic change, of great conflict between the old ways and brand new systems, and of huge fortunes made and lost. From the creator of Downton Abbey, the drama series ensemble includes Christine Baranski, Carrie Coon, Cynthia Nixon, and Morgan Spector, immersed in a world on the brink of the modern age, embroiled in a social war between old and new money. All episodes now streaming on HBO Max. So Sharon, one of the stories everyone's talking about right now is a very troubling one involving Paul Haggis, who is, of course, the Oscar-winning uh, writer-director of Crash. Yeah, yeah, very disturbing. Um, so Paul Haggis was arrested in Italy over the weekend on charges of sexual assault and aggravated personal injury. A woman who uh, he claims to know Uh, but has not been identified, says that Haggis raped her over multiple days in the town of Ostani, where he was scheduled to hold a series of masterclasses at Alora Fest, a kind of film festival this week. We should note that Haggis has denied the allegations and he claimed that any sex with this woman was consensual, but it is worth noting that he was previously accused of sexual abuse by four other women in a case that was filed five years ago in the United States, hasn't gone anywhere. Haggis also claimed that he was innocent in that case. And at the time he claimed that the Church of Scientology, which he left back in 2009, was behind the allegations. Uh, I'm not even sure what to say, something so disturbing in the news about a very familiar member of the film community. Adam, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, it's awful. And he was, you know, he was in Italy touting this film festival. um, And, you know, I don't know, this just this story just kind of makes me sick. So moving on, uh, Fox News has agreed to pay former host Melissa Francis $15 million after she accused the network of a gender pay disparity. Uh, and was ultimately taken off the air. The Washington Post reported on Sunday. Uh, Francis, she was an anchor at Fox Business, and she was promoted to co-anchor the Fox News uh, show Outnumbered. 
But she told the Post that the meager salary increase she was offered prompted her to start gathering information about her male and female co-workers' salaries. And then when she, after she collected this data, when she presented it to uh, someone during a contract negotiation, she says that she was told, that's how the world works. Women make less. It's just a fact. Uh, a spokesperson for Fox called Francis's version of that conversation untrue and patently absurd. And uh, six months ago, the New York State Department of Labor began an investigation into her complaint and now has obviously settled. So let's just say, let's just say at the outset, a $15 million settlement is a shit ton of money. Yes. You don't pay that unless you think the other side has some really serious chance of winning and winning a lot more money than that. Right. So this reflects really poorly on Fox News. Of course, there's already been a movie about sexual misconduct at mm -hmm. Fox News. Um, so uh, tell, remind me who was in that movie, Adam. You're better on it. Um, uh, that was Margot Robbie. Margot and, Robbie, thank you. Who was the yeah. producer? Nicole Kidman. Nicole Kidman, I think, yeah. His great yeah. ancestor. Yeah. Yeah. It, Yes. Yeah. Really, really well done movie. And there's been books written. Uh, Fox News, you guys, maybe clean up your act over there. Like maybe you need a, uh, I wouldn't say a lobotomy was sort of the word that came to mind because I'm thinking they need an overhaul on their editorial policies <laughs> as well as their uh, HR policies toward women. But it's like, you're, you're not going to shed this reputation that you've got of treating women poorly unless you actually take it seriously. So maybe get some women that, I mean, there's a woman who runs Fox news. Yeah. I would love to interview Suzanne Scott would like to come on the show. Suzanne, you are hereby invited and we promise to ask you at least a couple of softball questions. <laughs> well, I just love that this woman did her homework. She came into this contract and negotiation, having gathered all this data and presented it and said, this is what I deserve to make. But then to be, you know, allegedly told, we're not paying you, you that. Don't. <laughs> yeah, because you're a woman. That's just. I mean, I find it, it. It is obviously there's not a transcript. There's not a recording of that conversation. Certainly, that's what she heard. If that, it seems hard to believe that anybody would be that dumb to say something like that. Yeah. Uh, but clearly, they said something that made the lawyers at Fox settle the case. Right. So, settle the case. It for almost that doesn't matter. Yeah. For that amount of money. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's almost, it seems almost as if there was no way to deny that it was a uh, gender pay disparity. So. Yeah. Anyway, guys, let's be women the same as men. Let's try. Yes. All right. Moving on. Shot. Well, speaking of salaries, uh, it sounds like Bob <laughs> Chapek doesn't have a big fan in Abigail Disney. So this week, the rap's very own Joe Bell Bruno exclusively reported that the granddaughter of Roy Disney, who is the co-founder of the Walt Disney Company and the brother of Walt Disney himself, is preparing a legal challenge to Chapek's annual compensation. Chapek's pay was doubled in 2021 to $32.5 million. He had taken a cut, of course, during covid but Abigail Disney has spent the last few months quietly courting international investors to support a shareholder push against his pay. So Abigail Disney, who we have had as a guest speaking about this issue of disp disparate pay for workers in the parks and the top executive at Disney, she's spoken about it at our Power Women Summit a couple of years back. She has been consistently an outspoken critic of the company, but this now comes in the wake of a whole series of blunders on Chapek's part, including the whole 
conflict with the state of Florida over their new don't say gay law. And he is just, this is just another challenge that he's facing. Yeah. The, the hits keep on coming. Um, and it, it does not like, look like he is uh, standing in good stature at this point. Well, it is an interesting question. You know, when uh, Joe, our reporter wrote the story, we went and talked to people about, CEO pay. CEO pay is not just inflated over at Disney. And by the way, Bob Chapik is by far not the highest paid CEO in this industry, although he does run one of the biggest conglomerates in the entertainment industry. But um, famously, you know, the new, the Discovery CEO was making uh, more money and now will be now that he's running Warner Brothers and Discovery, but even just at Discovery, he was making more money than that, a lot more money than that. Um, other people like when he uh, running CBS, Les Mumes was making $60 million a year. And the salaries are just completely out of whack with the performance of the company. And of course, we should point out that Disney stock is down something like 40% from the beginning of the year. So all of this gives Abigail Disney more uh, fuel for a shareholder kind of um, uh, run at Bob Chapek, whose reign looks kind of shakier and shakier. Last week, we were talking about him dropping Peter Rice, who was a potential threat to him as another potential CEO, and the board coming out with a statement saying, we think Bob Chapek's doing a great job. This is not going to be, uh, you don't want to be in the press for something like this. No, and I mean, it's worth noting that Abigail Disney uh, was also openly critical of Bob Iger's salary. Uh, he, he had a $65.6 yeah. million, com million dollar compensation but I think what makes this notable is precisely because Chapek is on the ropes. Uh, his contract is up for renegotiation. Um, you know, the end of the year, a, early next year. Yeah, yeah early next year. His so there are a lot of questions up, yeah. surrounding it. So it does feel like a, a lot of punches in a row. He, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he needs to do something. I can't tell you what it is, but he needs to do something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Next up. It's time for the wax on, wax off portion of the show where Sharon gives her thoughts on her favorite person or moment of the week. Sharon, the floor is yours. Thank you. Well, hard not to notice that for the first time in decades, our very own Senate, meaning our politicians, uh, is very close, this close, to passing restrictions on gun sales. This is in the wake of overwhelming pressure from the American public and a constant horrific stream of mass shootings. This new legislation gives authorities up to 10 business days to review the mental health records of gun purchasers younger than 21. It funds these so-called red flag laws, which allows authorities to tempor temporarily confiscate guns from people they decide are dangerous. And it closes a dating loophole that takes guns away from domestic abusers. Obviously, this doesn't do a lot of things that the overwhelming majority of Americans want, such as banning assault weapons, the AR-15, um, and an actual um, cooling off period between buying, uh, buying some of these guns. But it is a landmark piece of legislation because it's something. The bill did pass in an initial vote, 64 to 34 in the Senate, and it is expected to pass its final hurdle on Saturday. And in some ways, I'm hard, it's hard to believe I'm even saying that our Congress is passing some gun control. That's my wax on. But, but my wax off is at the same time as that's happening, the Supreme Court has just made it more dangerous 
uh, to live with guns in our country by striking down a New York gun law that banned carrying a handgun in New York City. The justice's six to, th six to three decision will allow people to legally carry guns on the streets of our largest cities where it has been previously subject to much uh, serious restrictions. And this includes not just New York, but Los Angeles, Boston, and elsewhere. This is a really disturbing ruling from a court that is also poised to knock down Roe v. Wade and a woman's right to choose to have an abortion after 49 years of settled precedent in this country, which they're probably going to do on Friday. Uh, so all of that is, I don't know how to do a wax off and underline it really in big, bold letters, but that's a big wax off. That's it. Co-signed. That's it for wax on, wax off. Uh, next up, we're getting the inside scoop on Elvis from the man himself, director Baz Luhrmann. When Baz Luhrmann makes a movie, you can rest assured it's going to be anything but predictable from Strictly Ballroom to Moulin Rouge to Australia to even The Great Gatsby. He puts his own spin on everything. Uh, that's certainly the case with Elvis, his new film about the king of rock and roll that charts the music icon's life and career through the eyes. The complex relationship he had with his business manager, Colonel Tom Parker, played by Tom Hanks, who, in our interview, Baz says was neither a, a colonel nor a Tom nor a Parker. Uh, the raps Drew Taylor <laughs> sat down with Lerman recently to discuss this long gestating project and why Parker was so fascinating to him. Uh, also revealing uh, an aspect of Parker's life that is not in the film, um, but his reaction as soon as Elvis died to get uh, his record sold and make a profit. Um, and he also discussed Austin Butler's impressive performance as Mr. Presley himself. So let's listen in. Hey, Drew. Uh, this is Drew Taylor from The Wrap. Boz Lerman, so nice to meet you. I've been a fan for so long. This is so great. I love <laughs> thank the you. movie. Really, a thank you. Yeah. Uh, very cool. Well, that's a nice start, Drew. I like that. Okay, good. I, this is me buttering you up. Um, you were first announced on this project back in 2014. So I was wondering, what was the biggest kind of change from you getting excited about the project to where we are now? Well, if I remember correctly, I probably... I mean, I mean, I took it on not to do a biopic, but I always thought Elvis would be this great canvas to explore America because he's sort of at the center of everything in the 40s and the 50s and the 70s, uh, the, the 50s, 60s and 70s, yeah? And then I stepped away from it because I just, I was doing a Chinese film actually, I was doing a film set in China, I was working on it, and I couldn't find a way in. And then, I can't remember when, but things started to change and I learned more about Colonel Tom Parker, never a Colonel, never a Tom, never a Parker, plot twist, you know. And I thought, oh, this is like Amadeus, you know. Amadeus isn't really about Mozart. I mean, even if you don't care about Mozart, Amadeus is a great film because it's actually Salieri's story. You know, well, who's Salieri? Well, exactly, that's what it's about. And I just thought, ah, that's a way of exploring, like subconsciously exploring America. The big cell, the big character, the big throw dust in your eyes, the big clown with a chainsaw over here. And then this thing that America is great for, which is all of these cultures and all of this chaos creating the new or okay. invention. I mean, did focusing on Tom, I, I'm assuming focusing on Tom Parker 
presented some challenges as well because we've seen so many biopics that just kind of straight down the middle. And I was wondering what were the kind of complications that you were facing? Well, I mean, the moment I found, I mean, when you find out that he was never Colonel, never Tom, never Parker, when you start to look at his journey and the fact that he completely created this fictitious character and that he was a carnival barker, and you see, I think it's in the movie, like he never, I think he, on a personal level, I think even when he was, you know, spoiler alert, but in his, in his growing up in Holland doing animal tricks, because he, he trained animals from a very young age, I think he had self-loathing. He didn't think he was attractive. And so people who feel like that, they, and they need, you know, the carnival act is like a, an avatar to them. You know, look at my beautiful dancing pony, but I have the power and the pony needs me. And I think there was a bit of that attitude towards Elvis. And what he didn't expect was that the pony would turn out to be actually a true artist and a really, really sensitive and creative being. And so the drama is this tension between the trainer and the extraordinary creative spirit of Elvis. And that wrestle, it soars. It, it becomes so successful that it becomes a political problem. And then Parker is always having to dodge and weave. But every step he takes dodging and weaving, he's also a genius. Like, he does invent, you know, the satellite concert so Elvis never has to sing outside America. I mean, go figure that. Right. I mean, did you, did you feel ever sort of confined by that conceit? Like, were there things that you wanted to put in that, but just didn't? You couldn't figure out how it connected to Tom Parker or something. Oh, like, like, yeah, there's so much. Like, I'll tell you something. Guillermo del Toro is a great friend of mine. And he just made Nightmare Alley. And Parker's favorite film, he obsessively watched Nightmare Alley, the old version, obsessively. And I even filmed Tom watching Nightmare Alley. And, but, you know, in the end, there's some Easter eggs in there. If you look at the film, you'll see a little bit of the geek tent and things like that, they're Easter eggs. But, you know, going down the road of the fact that the Colonel's idea of a great person is this kind of faux mentalist. And, the, and also that film is about, you know, a carny who flies so high like Icarus and then crashes to earth. And there's a line in the end of the old movie that goes, how, when, when, the, when that character becomes the geek himself, which if you think about it, Parker ends up strolling through casinos. He lost all of his money just punching it away on gambling. Like the line in, in that movie is, how could someone go so low? And the other line is, I guess, because they flew so high. Right. You know? Well, I wanted to ask about um, Austin Butler because it's such an amazing performance. Yeah, I'm but glad you think- But now I'm seeing him on red carpets and stuff and he's like, he's talking like Elvis, did you ruin Austin Butler, is he now going to be Elvis out in the world? Yeah, I mean, uh, well, look, I'll tell you something. You can't... Look, there's, there's, there's the video I saw, there's the Denzel Washington story, that's true. Denzel saying, you know, you're not, you're not going to believe how hard this guy works. But, and Austin and Elvis lose their mother at the same age, so that's given them sort of a spiritual connection. I think Austin blended himself with Elvis which is why okay. he's humanized him so much. Why people go like, I mean, 
very significant people I know who see the film who, who don't truck with Elvis at all, who don't care. Went like, I just felt like I met someone I never knew. And right. Austin achieves that by melding himself with Elvis. Now look, you also can't work on lowering your voice a tone for two, nearly three years. Like, it sticks with you. I mean, my voice, when I started directing, there was a, a video of me, a career video went up. And it went, hi, my name's Baz Luna. I'm the director of Strictly Ballroom. Like, that's how I spoke when, you know, back then. I mean, three years is nearly how long you spent in high school. So, yeah, like, his voice is like that. I think he's going to have to do some other role that is as completely absorbing for him to recalibrate. But, I mean... The Austin Butler, I think, that was in the Disney shows doesn't exist anymore. I mean, right. he's gone through so much in life. Right. I mean, we I all mean, evolved. For you, was it, yeah. As a filmmaker, was it hard to kind of stay away from some of the kitschier aspects of Elvis? Like, you know, we all have these kind of ideas about what Elvis was, especially later in life. You mean like a close-up on a deep-fried peanut butter and... And banana exactly. sandwich or something. Um, exactly. Um, you see, I, I, I wanted to serve a big arc. And that story was about the cell and the creative spirit. I, that's something I can relate to, you know, like creativity versus like making money, you know? Mm. And right. also the responsibility. I mean, look, David Bowie, without... I can't seem to help, but forget the name dropping, but he, he was an icon to me, and he, then he became a very different. And he does this wonderful um, mime when he was young. And it's about, he, did, he, you know, he studied mime. He puts a mask and says, when, you know, when you're young, like you do something funny, you put a mask on, and the parents go, oh, isn't he funny? Isn't that cute? Clap, clap, clap. Then when you get older, you put it on, and they go, you do that so well, clap, 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 we'll give you money. Then when you do it really, really, really well, everyone's like, put the mask on, and you know you have anything you want, anything you want, isn't it great? And keep the mask on, isn't it great? Keep the mask on, and in the mind, Bowie goes, and then, and he's trying to take the mask off, and he can't take the mask off, and then in the mind, he dies. And I think that that is one of the underlying themes of celebrity and fame and success and the power to move and touch people, which is what Elvis had. You're just a human being. But if you can do that, if you have the power to do that, then we the fans and we the audience just want you to do it one more time. Couldn't Marlon just do one more great performance? Couldn't David just do one more great album and go on tour? Well, in fact, David did. It was released after his death. You know, mm -hmm. right? But you know what I mean. The the, the the end of the story. Spoiler alert: the argument Parker makes is, I I didn't do it. He loved giving you. He loved the love that you gave him. He was addicted to it, and you loved loving him. Right. I all my job was my job was to exploit him. My job right. and all I. This is not in the movie. But when. Elvis dies, Parker gets the phone call. He's not here at Graceland. No, God, I can point to where Elvis died from here. Um, 
when Elvis dies, Pa gets the phone call and he picks the phone immediately up and he says to RCA, print more records. Now we would all go, what a heartless human being. But he would go, yeah, but you wanted the records. Right. I just did what you wanted me to do, you know? Right. Insane. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me, Boz. Uh, no, it was really enjoyable. Movie. I really did enjoy and this. I can't one. wait to see it again. And we're not quite done discussing Disney today. With another of the rap exclusive to boot. That's right. That's right. Disney has announced that it is delaying a mandated move to Florida for 2,000 employees in its Disney Parks Experience and Products Division. So changing it from 2023, which is right around the corner, to 2026. But as our own Drew Taylor has reported, this delay has done little to assuage concerns from those who are hesitant to move in the first place. Drew was the one who broke the story that the uh, Imagineers specifically, that group of incredibly creative people who drive so much of the innovation at Disney were upset about this move, particularly because of the anti-LGBTQ legislation that was being passed in Florida. So he was the first one to break the story that they had gone to Bob Chapik to ask him to reconsider that move. He has now done that. Uh, and there is reaction, as you are not would not be surprised to find out. So let's uh, welcome Drew to the wrap-up to talk about this. Drew, you there? I'm here. So good to, right, to see Drew. both of you and, and to Thanks. be on the podcast. Yeah. Yeah, well, we love having you on to talk about this. I mean, this really was your story to begin with, that the Imagineers um, were asking Bob Chapik in the wake of the passage of the Don't Say Gay bill to reconsider this this required move to Florida, which was causing a lot of Imagineers to to leave the company, right? Right. Yeah, it was kind of a way of, of forcing a lot of retirements and uh, a lot of people who just didn't want to move to Florida were saying, you know what, it's okay. I'm not going to continue with the company. And this was last year where they were given about 90 days. So but Drew, let's just clarify, like, like sure. why, for most of our listeners don't really even understand this, why did Disney in, want or insist that people move from Burbank to Florida in the first place? Well, they see Florida as a, a real hub. Uh, obviously, Walt Disney World is there and all of the resorts and water parks and things. Um, but the big incentive was a $600 million tax write-off that they will be able to cash in. Mm. Uh, although that... In my reporting, I talked to people who, who seem to believe that that might be in jeopardy given uh, Chapek's ongoing war with uh, Governor Ron DeSantis. So, I mean, that that's another big X factor that kind of came up in the reporting was like, is he even going to get the money or is he going to just move everybody down there? But I mean, when we were talking about it, Sharon, you said, oh, people must be elated. And it was like, no, it's actually <laughs> right, like right. they're even more concerned because, you know, maybe... People must be elated that they that that Disney decided to delay to bump. the yes. move. Right. right. Yeah, that was my immediate. It was like, oh, well, they won, so they must be thrilled. Right. I mean, I think, you know, what's frustrating is that when given a, a, a term of 90 days to figure out, are you going to move your family? Are you going to take your kids out of school? That that was really right. daunting for people. Given a longer runway, they're saying, well, maybe we can work it out. But what they're finding is that, Oh, maybe their job has been replaced by somebody in Florida already. Um, 
they are they are the ones being forced to reach out to Disney and to HR and not Disney is not making any kind of accommodations. And there are so many people that they're having to process that they're bringing in independent contractors from out of state who maybe aren't in the same time zone or have no uh, understanding of the kind of organizational hierarchy of company. And they are failing these employees. Well, I mean, is uh, this well. is this a is this a significant number of employees? I guess I'm trying. It, you know, there's tens of thousands of people who work at Disney. This is right. just a niche. Like, so I guess you might ask, why do we even care so much about these people? Right. Well, I think that you know there are supposed to be five thousand positions at this um, campus when all is said and done. Now, how many of those are coming from California? That's what remains to be seen because as far as I know, anytime someone gives the no out here, they're immediately replaced with someone in Florida. Mm -hmm. So the reason why this is so important and why Disney fans are so interested in this is because of the Imagineering component. I mean, this is a company that Walt himself founded. It's been in Glendale almost from the very beginning. There was a, an mm -hmm. office on the Burbank lot initially, but but the Glendale campus is where all this stuff happens. If you've ridden Space Mountain or, you know, gone on a Disney cruise, it all came out of this building. Um, so that the relocation from Glendale to Florida is huge and it has, has seismically changed you know, the Imagineering landscape forever because of so many people either leaving because they didn't want to go to Florida or sort of being forced out into early retire retirement. Um, and so that's the big concern is that this is sort of the crown jewel of the Disney empire and the kind of creative nerve center. So much gets funneled through Imagineering. You know, so much Imagineering is such an important cog in the wheel in terms of activations in the park. Uh, for movies and TV shows that there's just nobody left. Like when I did my Imagineering story, I talked to a former Imagineer who who thinks that there could be like fewer than 50 Imagineers in the entire country right now working what? at Disney. Yeah. What? So it, it's crazy. Yeah. It's a really... So between the, between the layoffs that happened in during the pandemic, between the forced retirements and the people who said that they didn't want to leave to Florida, there's just sort of nobody left, uh, which is really interesting. And um, we'll see how many of those people survive to 2026. Well, what, are the what are the implications of that? Well, I mean, the implications are that it's going to affect the way that Disney parks look for the next 10 or 15 years, maybe, while they're either training up younger Imagineers, trying to bring in new people to themed entertainment. You know, that's the thing about Florida is that Universal is building a huge, completely state-of-the-art park uh, down by the convention center that is going to open in 2025. The Imagineers were supposed to be down in Florida by 2023 so that they could start combating this new park with stuff at Florida. Now they're not going to even get down there until 2026. So that battle has been kind of forfeited, right? Like they've sort of conceded that Universal is going to kind of own the landscape for... I don't know, until maybe the end of the decade because of how, how slow things are to ramp up. I mean, they could announce 10 new things at, at D23 in September and it would still be five or six years before we even see any of this stuff mm -hmm. in an actual park. So you're the, it, you're the Disney historian. Has the, has this ever happened before in the history of the parks? Has oh, yeah, there ever been question. a downturn in, in Imagineering or a fallow period in creative? 
Yes, there has. In about 84, when all the kind of, when, when uh, Epcot Center was open in Florida and the first overseas park, Tokyo Disneyland, was open, there was a mass layoff of Imagineers uh, from the company. And, you know, they, they obviously went to other things and a lot of them came back. But the big thing about this move is is that kind of kind of centralized imagineering. What 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 it was referred to in my reporting as kind of institutional knowledge of imagineers that have been there before who know how to open a park or an attraction or build a cruise ship that is just not going to be there anymore. So, you know, things like the Imagineering Research Library, which is an amazing library um, in Glendale near the campus that won't move because they they can't move it. I mean, the build, there were sort of pieces of Imagineering history that the building was built around. So mm -hmm. you're going you're gonna to encounter things like that where, you know, you can't go and reference something. You can't walk down the hall or walk across the street to see what uh, Disney television animation is working on. You can't drive down to see what, you know, animation is doing in Burbank. You know, it's like a lot of that kind of, back and forth is going to be gone just because they're so far removed. Far but away. yeah, I, I will. I'm just really interested to see what's, what's going to happen. It's really interesting. It's, it's kind of depressing as a lifelong Disney fan and historian to see this happen to the, to that division. Um, but yeah, the move to 2026 certainly isn't making anybody feel any better in the building. That's, That's so true. crazy. Uh, pardon me if this is not something that you actually know, but it, what is the status right now between Disney and the Florida state? I mean, it seems very contentious. Obviously, the last thing we've heard publicly is is DeSantis trying to remove the special provisions from the Reedy right. Creek Improvement District, which is kind of the, the sovereign nation that Walt Disney World sits on. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, that I, I, that seems to me like more of a kind of campaign ploy than anything else, um, because ultimately, if they do rescind that, the taxpayers of Florida are going to be burdened by the extra costs uh, just as much as Disney is. So um, the history of Rita Creek is really interesting and, and how it came to be. Um, and I don't think it's going anywhere, but that's sort of the last kind of public salvo. But I could see DeSantis trying to pull the 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 rebates for this uh, Lake Nona project pretty easily. And, and I could see in your future, perhaps a book about the history <laughs> of Disney. I, I will have to take a sabbatical. Yeah. But that, maybe that <laughs> no, you, you just started here. You can't take okay. sabbatical. Come on. Okay. <laughs> but like, it started yeah. today. Uh, oh yes. Yes. Yeah. But you do have weekends. I do have weekends. <laughs> Sometimes. Unless I'm talking to Boz Lerman, like like we just heard. So yeah, yeah. that's true. Drew that's is true. I will frequently ask Drew just a very simple nerdy Disney question and we'll get back a, a thesis on like and also and like five paragraphs of Yeah, you know, Sharon, you gotta go on one of my my uh, unpaid walking tours of one of the parks. Adam has been on one in, yes. in Florida. I would totally do that. Yeah. I, yeah. It's probably the only way to get me to go to a Disney. I know, park, I know. <laughs> Now that my children are all grown and I don't have grandchildren <laughs> at this point in time, but yeah, I would definitely do that. All right, um, let's do but it. But you should. But on your side, maybe think about a book. Not a bad. Okay. Idea. okay. Yes. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks a lot, Drew Taylor, for coming on and keep on that story because that's absolutely fascinating. Anytime. Thank you guys so much for having me. Thanks, Drew. <laughs> thanks.
Okay, that is it for the latest episode of The Wrap-Up. Thank you to all of our listeners. And remember to please follow and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us and let us know what you think of the pod. See you next time.